0: A reading from Luke 2, 8 to 20, and Matthew 2, 1 to 12. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord showed around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this, the thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about the child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked,
1: there's knives, dangerous, dangerous, Christmas, danger, here, it's for you, thank you, thank you for coming, oh gosh, we're killing it, I'm killing it, no, 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 it's, it's going to be fine. This is how we start. This is how we start. I, I want to open with a very crucial question this morning. Uh, we want these sermons during Advent to be practical. And so, uh, how do you decide during the holiday season what movies to see? Not rhetorical. Seriously, how do you decide? Um, you, you, might, you might get some time off from work. You're going to be around family. Maybe your family has a, a movie-going tradition uh, in the holidays, it's Oscar run-up season. How do you decide, how do you decide what movie? I'll, I'll give you a couple of rubrics, uh, matrices to run your decision through. Um, first of all, plot. Something to consider. You might think, I want to see a movie with a great plot. Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. You know, you know this movie? Okay, we've got a fan over here. It's, it's uh, crucial details from the world of Harry Potter in the plot of this movie. So that might be one you want to see. Another, another you know, thing to consider, director. Uh, maybe you know that the movie *Allied* was directed by Robert Zemeckis, who also made what? Wrong, *Forrest Gump*, and and the *Back to the Future* the *Back to the Future* trilogy. And so you're like, I want to see anything Robert Zemeckis directs. So maybe that's that's how you make make your choice. Or perhaps cast. Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner are in the movie *Arrival*. And it's sort of an, a director I didn't know anything about, but maybe you see that movie because you choose to see the movie because of the cast. Side note, you should definitely see Arrival because it's like well, it's the, because it's clearly and obviously the best movie of the year. And I'm speaking to some doubters and haters um, in our midst, but also the word Advent means Arrival. <laughs> All right, that's the sermon. Bow your heads, close your eyes. It's been great. Um... So, those are the factors though, right? Those are the factors in any uh, story that we come to. uh, uh, You know, will we be moved? Will we we be challenged? Maybe even in the rarest instances, will we be changed? It's because who's the storyteller? What are the characters? What's what's the plot? We come each year to the gospel accounts of Jesus being born. Uh, We're dealing with those same elements, and you probably saw this coming. Uh, But who's the storyteller? Well... I believe God, uh, through the gospel writers, is te- is telling this this uh, this story. So, what what, it, what is the plot? The basic account. I'm imagining around Christmas, you expected to walk into this church and uh, hear something about Jesus being born this morning. Uh, just like when you went to see Titanic, you knew the ship was going down. Sorry, that was too dark. What's who, who's the storyteller? And that's a lot of people. Anyway. Um, who, who are the characters? What What is this? Who is the storyteller? What is the plot and who are the characters? And this is one, of, I, I think, one of the most surprising parts of the gospel accounts of Jesus being born is these characters who are caught up in the story, who wander into the scene. And I think even if they've become really familiar to us, they would have been quite unexpected to the original readers of, of these gospel accounts. And, and I think that their presence in the story communicate something that we really need to see and meditate on and perhaps, in the rarest senses, be really transformed by um, because because of who's telling the story and and the plot. So of all the people who are waiting for God's activity in the world, we've said this each week of Advent, there was a 400-year period of prophetic silence in Israel. And people are waiting for God, waiting for him to uh, accomplish his word and renew his activity in the world and make good on his promises to speak as he had done in times past. And of all the people who were waiting, who, who would have been the in-tune spiritual seekers of their day, the shepherds and then these foreign magi are pretty unlikely candidates. So all this to say we have an unlikely cast of characters, and we read, we read these two uh, responses to the birth of Jesus from these uh, unlikely characters. The, the shepherds first, okay? The shepherds were close to the action, but they were not the group of people expected to be looking for God in this way. These are, just so, so you get a sense of it, our imaginations are stirred. Uh, th- these are third shifters. This is the night watch. Uh, these are poor men, some of them even teenagers more than likely, some of them... Very likely watching other people's flocks uh, living out in the field, they were an often ignored and despised laboring class. Leon Morris, a scholar on the Gospel of Luke says, as a class, shepherds had a bad reputation. The nature of their calling kept them from observing the ceremonial law, which meant so much to religious people. More regrettable was their unfortunate habit of confusing mine with thine as they moved about the country. They were considered unreliable and were not allowed to give testimony in the law courts. So, God's beginning this movement of His kingdom in the world, and the first people He sends to be witnesses of it to then go and tell others is a group of people that are not even uh, able to give testimony in in, in a court of law. And God keeps doing this. He keeps bringing these very unlikely people into the center of His his narrative. And so, where, where Luke gives us the account of the shepherds. Matthew, who's writing to a particular uh, Jewish audience, he makes the point, and it's interesting to note, he makes the point to include these Gentile foreigners. So he's writing to a group of Jewish people about the expected Messiah, and he includes that there were these Gentile foreigners who were waiting for him and who were expecting him. We've spoken. In years past, uh, about the Magi in uh, in detail, the the wise men, as uh, as as they're often called, uh, but I just want to briefly hit on who these these folks were. The the Magi, they were uh, they came from um, the ancient priesthood of the Medes. Uh, I know you guys have done a lot of reading on the ancient priesthood of the Medes. Me too. Um, They were the supremely cast of the Persian Empire. And we run into them uh, in the Hebrew scriptures, particularly in the book of Daniel. Uh, The prophet Daniel, if you remember, in the time of King Darius, he was given the title chief magi. Now, we read that and we're like, oh, Daniel was doing really good and interpreting dreams and he's super qualified, so he got promoted. But that was very scandalous because the title only passed by birth. The chief magi was was something that you inherited. And so when Daniel was given that, that post, they became very jealous, hence... The lion's den incident happens in, in, in response to this. So Daniel was a man who was in tune with the heart of God. He, he, uh, the, the second half of Daniel, if you've ever read it, is these wild visions and these predictions of, of Messiah coming and the glory of God. And, and it, very likely, Daniel sowed in uh, to this community of, uh, of priests in, in the Persian Empire expectation for this Jewish Messiah to come. He sowed a seed of promise. He prophesied about the coming of Jesus. He told this secret sect of Magi to look for his star. Okay, so by the time uh, Rome was in power, the Parthians in that that region gave Rome many, many headaches. And there were several Roman invasions in that area that were repelled and, and prompted subsequent retaliation. I'm going somewhere with this, I promise, not just a history, history lesson. But Freytes IV, old, good old Phrates, um, who would have been primed to invade Parthia's borders, but he was not very popular. He was getting old. And the Magi were involved in choosing his successor. So the Magi had uh, not only priestly uh, r- religious influence o- o- over their community, but they also had political, uh, they could exert political will. They could help establish a new king and a new ruler. So These are not just three scraggling guys coming in with a leather-bound journal and some uh, essential oils for Jesus. Um, They're rolling into town with an entourage, with royal pomp and circumstance. And uh, they they would have had a a, a heavy guard for their valuables more than likely as as they came in. And they come in to Herod's palace, the king of the Jews, with all this might and wealth. And they say, we're looking for the person who was born king of the Jews. So Herod's pretty insulted, and uh, he, he, tr- he tries to p- play nice with them, and you can see a forced smile come on his face in the, in the story, uh, but, but he immediately begins to plot, you know, how, how, can I, uh, how, how can I squash this? This was a direct insult to Herod, posed a specific threat to Herod. Uh, they came bearing these expensive gifts, and there's none mentioned for him, and so Just so we have it, so our imaginations are poised, showing up on the scene in the birth of Jesus is a group of poor, very often despised, working-class night watch shepherds who would would have had the look and smell of people who lived out in the field and dealt with livestock, and a group of stargazing foreigners who posed an immediate threat to the paranoid ruler of the day. We've been saying each week, we've been saying as we light the candles, that Advent is a season for waiting for God. It is a season to remember and cultivate the, the faith to wait for God to act in God's way instead of either choosing despair, which might be our natural inclination or temptation, or, or choosing the other way, which is just sheer activity, no matter what God has said, to rush forward uh, and not, not, not wait on God, but simply rush forward with our own, own, our own plans, so waiting on God, as we, we talked about last week, is, is very particularly the substance of faith. It's what is required to trust that God is going to provide and not to imagine that I have to be the curator of my own soul. I have to be the storyteller of my own life. I have to basically wrench control for myself and, and try to be, be my, my own God. And so we're loosely hanging these four weeks, and I wouldn't actually have expected you to see that we were doing this, but we've been loosely hanging these four weeks of Advent on the four relationships that shape our lives. And the scripture describe, describes uh, these as, as the, the things that were most damaged in the fall of humanity. And therefore, those are the things that God is at work repairing in his work of redemption in the world. We, we talked about this before, but when I say the four relationships, I mean our relationship with God, our understanding of ourself, how we relate to others, and how we actually relate to the world, to, to society, to, to the earth. So God, self others' world. And like I said, I wouldn't have expected you to to, to see this, but in the first week of Advent, we we, we noted we're longing for changes in the world. We're waiting on a new type of of, of world to to come into reality, beautiful, uh, shaped by the kingdom of God, love, joy, forgiveness, justice, compassion. And we have a chance to participate in that world coming coming into, uh, into being. So how do we wait for the world that we're longing for? The second week of Advent, we were looking at our own hearts. This was last week. How can we become the type of people that the kingdom of God is coming through? The type of people who are like John the Baptist, who, whose whole entire life is shaped around the expectation of, of lifting up Jesus, of, of being able to recognize the moment when it happens and say, there it is. That's a glimpse of the kingdom of God. That's what it looks like. There's forgiveness in action. There's compassion being demonstrated. There's radical loving generosity. There's, there's, a re- there's reconciliation at work and be the people who can, who can see it and call it out and say, there it is. There's the kingdom of God. How do we, how do we become those people? This week we're looking at, at, at others, at if God's work of redemption and repair includes how we really relate with one another, then we know we have to have patience and trust for the ideal to be arrived at. And any of us who've tried deep, meaningful friendship or, 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 or relationship with our spouse for a long time know that to really relate even to someone that you love well over time takes a lot of work. And perhaps we can get there and we, we want to make progress when it comes to renewing the relationships with the people that we love, but God keeps, keeps insisting on more than that. He certainly says for our family, for our children, for our people, but God keeps insisting on widening our, our, the, the angle of our view and saying, not just your people, not just those that you love, but but even those who are different than you, not just our loved ones, but our enemies, not just those who can benefit our lives or improve our social standing or meet our needs, but those who can only ask for things from us, those who offer us no upward mobility in our life. And so it's no mistake that God has shepherds and foreign Gentiles, stargazers show up uh, before any other way more qualified visitors to see baby Jesus. He has these strange foreigners with different religious leanings showing up to lavish gifts on baby Jesus. And each of them, by the way, are showing up to teenagers who are embroiled in, uh, in the shame of what everyone seems to think is, is the, this scandal of an unwanted pregnancy. It's like God is going out of his way to show us that he hasn't just come for the qualified He hasn't just come for the strong. He hasn't just come for those who have the pedigree. He hasn't just come for us, for our people, and for those that we are comfortable with. His cast of characters shows us that the plot of the story of redemption is for every body, for every tribe and tongue and nation. And the way forward is extravagant love between God and people and between people and people. The cast of character shows us that this the director of this story is one whose heart is pouring out with love to reach those outside, the other, those who seem distant. So, God's God's drawing our attention to this just by the cast who shows up in, in this in this in this Christmas. Christmas story. But there's, there, the, the levels go e- even deeper than that. And I want to just draw attention to it for, for a few few more minutes. We see the outsiders included, but the director wants us to know this is no accident that it was these particular outsiders that were included. See, there had been a problem with, with Israel's spiritual shepherds in the past. God knew it and he called them out on it. Jeremiah 23 is one, one example of it. Uh, it says, woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. This is uh, one of those passages you read as a pastor and you like kind of quake in your boots and am I qualified to do this? No, gosh, I'm not, but God somehow has called me anyway and he, he, keeps, he, keeps, he keeps lavishing his grace. Uh, but, but he is, he is not uh, uh, scared to give stern warnings to those who are shepherding his flock. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture and, and where they will be fruitful and increase in number I will place shepherds over them who will tend them and they will no longer be afraid or terrified and nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. And then he gives this prophecy of Messiah coming. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In the days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous savior. there are other instances all through the Hebrew scriptures, but here's the point I want us to, to not miss. Israel's shepherds had forgotten God and their true identity as his people, and they were scattered even to exile to places like Babylon, where Daniel then sows the seed for the promise of Messiah. And Jeremiah is describing that this Messiah will be what? He will be a savior and a king. He will replace the false broken shepherds who, who abandoned the sheep. And so it is no coincidence at all that God shows up, this angelic host shows up and announces to these night watch shepherds what? Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Hundreds of years later, the prophetic promise of Jeremiah is revealed to these unexpected shepherds. God keeps his promises very simple right this morning. In the unique circumstances of your life, in the secret places of your inner monologue, in those little spots between your thoughts and intentions, in the very deepest part of you, I want you to know, I need to know that God keeps his promises. That when there is delay, like we said last week, very often it's because great preparation is going in. And what seems like delay to us as we stamp our feet and insist that God move in a certain way is often a work of preparation in our own hearts in the circumstances of the world. I just wanna say that to you. This is at the heart of the gospel, God keeps his promises. And when you begin to believe his promises, that's in a sense like that's how relationships begin, that's how a relationship with God begins is he extends a promise of grace and you begin to count, like that grace counts for me and you begin to believe it and trust in it and live as if it's true. Second Peter talks about when we take hold of the divine promises and trust them and believe them, that we actually participate in God's nature. Very simply, how does a Christian life work? Break it down. Well, God makes a promise. You take that promise, chew on it, let it sink into your heart, believe that it is really true and then live like it's true and then you become a participant in God's nature. We were talking at Alpha Alpha this week about that reality. Like you stand, this is what God has asked you to do. And this, this happens in my life so much. I'm saying this as a confession to you. God says, I want you to do this. And I stand on this side of, of the, the line of obedience saying, God, I need more clarity. I need more confirmation. I'm putting out another fleece. Do you really want me to do this? That's gonna be very hard. That's gonna be difficult. And I want understanding. I want clarity. I want insight. And I stand here not getting it. And then when I cross the line of obedience, I begin to see in reverse, why God called me to that thing. Our understanding, our insight, the clarity we're longing for, the peace we're longing for, very often is on the other side of obeying God, on the other side of taking the risk to take hold of His promises and live as if they're true. God keeps His promises even when he does so in ways that you and I would not have seen coming. You would have never picked the Magi. We would have never picked the shepherds. And yet God is like, it's so crucial that they be the ones who are on the scene. (coughs) Excuse me. Because God's rescue plan is subverting the very thing that got us into trouble in the first place. His love cannot be stopped. If you hear nothing else from this message this morning, here, that God keeps his promises and his love cannot be stopped. There had been a problem with Israel's shepherds, that's for sure, but there had also been a problem with the earthly rulers in the regions around. There, there had been a whole bunch of bad kings, both in Israel and in the surrounding area. Some of them had been worse, but it, it seems to be that it's not just a king problem, it's a human problem. The first lies that were uttered in the garden, in the temptation, in the fall of humanity, were, were what? basically a summary of them will be like you can be like god and you will not surely die and human beings ever since have have been have been trying to do that trying to be like god like if if you eat this your eyes will be opened and you will be like god and you will not surely die and and we've been after that right we've been after lasting staying power making our lives into a legacy being being the ones in control of our of our own story ever since these are still the the deceptions that haunt our story you might be thinking of your own example but just in the rulers just around the immediate area phratis our buddy the fourth phratis the fourth was a mighty warrior he led a powerful force Herod had schemed with Rome to get his power. He had been installed by the mightiest empire in the world. And he was so desperate to hold his claim to power that he ordered a genocide after Jesus was born. Augustus, the, 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 the Caesar of Rome, was claiming his own divinity as the son of God. My father Julius has died and I saw a comet that was him going into heaven. I am the son of God. This is the advent that the world was celebrating at the time. But here's the thing, the IV would be replaced, would fall into obscurity. I'm betting you didn't know about the Fourth very much before you came in here this morning. Herod was go, would go insane in the next decades and, and die a, a horrific, paranoid death and be replaced. And I love what N.T. Wright says about Caesar Augustus. Augustus never heard of Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. But within a century or so, his successors in Rome had not only heard of him, they were taking steps to obliterate his followers. Within just over three centuries, the emperor himself became a Christian. God was beginning an entirely new way. (laughs) The lies that had been sown all the way back in the garden that have led us to be our own shepherds and to be our own kings, that have broken our relationship with God with our understanding of ourselves, with our very identity is, is, is fractured and we're, we're constantly needing to receive a name from someone else, to be affirmed by, by someone else. The thing that we're meant to get from God, it strains our relationship with others and even the very wor- the, the world that we are in. But God was doing something new. He was coming to be the good shepherd, coming to be the king that the Magi were looking for. Out of Jesus' own mouth, just 30 years later, he says what? Familiar words from John 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. The wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. Don't rush past that. This is how God wants to shepherd our life with such intimacy that we would know him the way the Father and the Son know each other in the Trinity, that we would be invited into the intimacy of that relationship, Father, Son, Holy Holy Spirit, the community uh, 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 in the very being of God. His very nature is love. And he said, I want to bring you into the embrace of that and shepherd your life with that level of care that you would know me, that you would know my voice, that you would know the tenderness of my love just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I need to hear, I need to hear this very often that my sin doesn't weigh more than the love of Christ, right? It's, it feels like humility to act like it does and to kick around in, in shame and guilt and frustration and, and, and say like, yeah, what Jesus did on the cross was, was good and necessary, but, but I'm gonna add to it so that I really feel forgiven, so that I really can, can access the, 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 the mercy and grace that's available to me. And so we, we, we go around trying to, add, I try to add to the cross instead of receiving its cleansing, healing, restoring love. Now, there is a true place for repentance and, and turning and changing direction in our lives, but that, that too has to be enabled by the grace of God. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen, I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The magi and the shepherds, it's unlikely cast are helping to make the point Jesus is saying here. I have other sheep. They're they're not like you and they're gonna make you uncomfortable at first, but I'm bringing them in because they're they're part of my family and we're gonna be one flock with, with one shepherd. This is the type of shepherd who will leave the 99. This is, right, <laughs> the economics of that are completely foolish. <laughs> to leave the 99 and go after the one, and yet that's what Jesus says he will do. God's heart is to redeem the other. So what does that mean for us? It means if we are participants with him, if we're the ones waiting for his kingdom to come in Brooklyn as it is in heaven, in our own hearts as it is in heaven, in our own families, in our own lives, in the lives of our children, if we're, wait, if we're waiting for that, we have to begin to see the other the way Jesus does. The way God does. So, so how do you begin? Well, first you get confidence to immerse yourself in the love of God personally. You, you believe the promises and then you step in, you begin, you begin as a participant in the life of those promises. God literally cleanses you by the death of Jesus on the cross, what, what he, did, he did to cleanse our sin. And then he fills you up like a temple. He fills you with his very life. And then that, that, that's how you begin the journey of being a Christian. As you take hold of the promise that what Jesus did, it wasn't just 2,000 years ago, it actually applies to my life and transforms me. And then you begin a process of being conformed into the image of Jesus by believing his promises, by letting him be your shepherd and be your king. So we immerse ourselves in God, we learn to love like he loves, we see the type of storyteller that he is, that he always delivers on his promises. And we begin to see glimpses, this Advent hope. We begin to see glimpses of his kingdom coming. I've seen some glimpses this week. (laughs) We're seeing in this text a culmination of promise. The threads of God's redemption are weaving together. Hebrews sort of gives us a summary of, of this reality. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. God had made all these promises to Israel and here he is making good on them by bringing the exact representation of his glory into the world for us to interact with, for us to hear from, to to show us what the kingdom of God is like in his words, in his action, and then to demonstrate how to come into the kingdom of God by literally giving his life to bring us in. A culmination of promise and an expansion of hope. God's been hinting all along that he's not just coming for one group of people. He's coming for the poor. He's coming for the despised. He's coming for the cynical, sophisticated. He's coming for the foreigner. He's coming for the rich young ruler and he's coming for the prostitute. This is an expansion of hope because whatever category you imagine is the other, the outsider, it means for you that you're also invited, that you're in. And maybe that's as far as you can go yet. And, and it will take time for God to transform your heart to truly care beyond this, the cage of our own selfishness. But you're invited in. That's something. I'm invited in. Anna, one of our um, prayer warriors in our church, I don't know the, another way to describe her. She's a prayer deacon. She said she woke up this morning just with a rushed sense that th- in this service there were there were people who needed to just like, uh, th- th- that we didn't need to, withhold the invitation of God. As some of you this morning actually need to receive an invitation from God and respond to it, and not just be spectators saying, oh, that sermon was good, a little long, but, but that you need to hear the invitation of God. Believe my promises. Trust in my extravagant love. Trust that I'm able to weave the threads of your life together. Trust that whatever you think disqualifies you, whatever you imagine keeps you out, it doesn't weigh as much as as my love. Don't make your failure, your shame, your brokenness. Don't imagine that it's more powerful than what I've done on the cross. That's just pride. There's, There's nothing stronger than the love of God. If His mercy, is on the throne. We sing his mercy reigns. What a thing that on the throne of the universe is a God of mercy who's saying to you by name, Come home. Receive my embrace. Let's begin again. Let's begin again. Let's begin again. Advent is a season where we wait, but we wait with great hope, and we are the, we are part of the unexpected cast in the drama of God's redemption. And so we practice delivering our lines to one another. Lines of gospel hope, lines of mercy, lines of forgiveness. We we stir one another up with these reminders that our hope is based on something substantial and slowly we are becoming a new type of character to fill out this plot in the world. Characters like Jesus The angel said to them, Do not be afraid. The most repeated phrase in the scriptures Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace and mercy. I thank you that it is new every morning, that the supply of your love is never ending and we can count on it every day. I thank you for even how I have counted on it this morning, God, how 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 many of us, Lord, are, are sustained by it very literally. I wanna pray, God, for our church right now. I wanna pray for those who need to know you as savior today, who need to know the tangible rescue of your love, that you can put the things that are weighing down their heart, weighing down their mind, weighing down their life, that you can, that you can remove them and give them freedom. I pray that many would experience the reality that you are savior this morning. And I also pray for those of us who need to realize again that you are also king. that things are best when you are in control of our life. I pray that there would be many who surrender control to you as king this morning. Would you speak by the power of your Holy Spirit and the way that you can penetrate to the deepest part of who we are. Speak by the power of your Holy Spirit to draw us to yourself and to respond in the particulars, the particular ways that each of us need to. Be lifted up, Jesus, and draw us to yourself.